The number one film of 1983 was the apparent end of the Star Wars series, Return of the Jedi. But for fans of action and exotic locations, there was going to be another movie attraction that summer, The Great Battle of the Bonds. James Bond, that is. How did 007 multiply? Well, the answer is complicated, but legal wrangling surrounding the novel Thunderball meant that Kevin McClory retained movie rights to that story, even after the Eon Productions film series began. This meant that audiences had a choice of seeing official Bond, Roger Moore, in Octopussy, or a returning Sean Connery in Never Say Never Again. It is rare that cultural products go up in direct conflict like this. How would the fans react? But there was a time when two Shakespearean actors also engaged in similar conflict with two productions of Macbeth produced simultaneously. I'll tell the story of how these dueling productions brought out the curse of the Scottish play in very dramatic fashion. A violent battle of the fans and the musical journey of Mark Morash on this episode of Culture Monster. Hello everyone. I'm Jonathan Gressel, and welcome to Culture Monster, the podcast where I devour the arts. Hindsight is 2020, they say, and as we move into a new year, the podcast continues. The first episodes have been focused on music, in conducting, and Beethoven, and there will be a few more of those. But the Sea Monster is only just getting started, and I plan on covering many more forms of art and culture before the year is through. For today's episode, it is especially gratifying to speak to Mark Morash, who is the new leader of the Calgary Opera. His career has been very successful in Canada and elsewhere, and he was happy to speak on many topics. But first, the Culture Monster Bite of the Day. This is where I recommend something I have been devouring recently. This episode's bite involves a special way to experience Shakespeare. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York. And all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean, buried. Some of the opening lines of Shakespeare's Richard III. You heard the voice of Laurence Olivier there. But in 1953, in a temporary theater, it was another actor, Alec Guinness, who set these lines at the beginning of one of Canada's most prominent cultural institutions, the Stratford Festival. Since then, generations of people have traveled to southwestern Ontario to see some of the best live theater available in North America. For the last decade or so, Stratford has been filming HD versions of some of its productions to be shown in cinemas. Now these are available digitally. There are several ways to see them. CBC Gem has made a selection of these films available for free. If you're looking for a recommendation, 
you can't go wrong with Colmfiore's King Lear. If tragedy is not your style, try The Tempest with the legendary Martha Henry as Prospero. For the complete Stratford experience, though, you can subscribe to the festival's new streaming service, Stratford at Home. For a low monthly fee, you can have access to the complete library of filmed productions, as well as new content weekly, even musical performances. As much as anything can be, these are essentially guaranteed to be of great quality. Links in the show notes if you'd like to see for yourself. think of our current entertainment era as one that emphasizes the power of fandom. Fans put themselves in groups with names like the Bayhive, the Cumber Collective, the Beliebers, and there are Twitter armies that can leap into action if the object of their affection is slighted or attacked. Sometimes this can lead to troubling real-life consequences, but it really isn't anything new. Beatlemania was preceded by Listomania. Music lovers once talked about how Paganini must have sold his soul to the devil to play the violin the way he did. But could the plays of William Shakespeare inspire such dramatic reactions? It turns out the Bard of Avon's work played a part in a violent incident that ended up with the deaths of more than two dozen people. While the causes took some time to build, it all came to a head May 10th, 1849, at the Astor Place Opera House in New York City. By the 1840s, the theater was slowly ascending from its low reputation, but was still often a rough place. Edwin Forrest, one of our two protagonists, knew that well having started his career touring the smaller towns and cities of the country. His first successes were in so-called minstrel shows, where he would often perform in blackface. He wanted more than that, however, and started to have success as a leading man of the legitimate stage, in plays by Shakespeare and others. At the height of his career, he held his own American playwriting contest to give himself more interesting parts to play. He even toured Britain and came back to America with positive reviews and a wife. Forrest was known for his physical and vigorous performances, sometimes called a more American style of performance. This was in great contrast to the more mental and genteel performances of his British rival, William McCready. McCready was known for his enunciation and had much success in Britain. Charles Dickens was one of his many fans. He even toured the USA successfully. I should point out at this point that while many actors and directors in New York and the other large cities were British, that didn't mean that Shakespeare was thought of as an especially British phenomenon. Many Americans, even those with only moderate schooling, had read some of Shakespeare's work or had memorized famous speeches. 
During the gold rush of 49, for example, prospectors were known to put on group readings of favorite plays. Now back to our story. The trouble all seems to start in 1845, when Forrest goes on a second tour of Britain. While he gets good notices in some plays, his performance of Macbeth was considered a failure and the performance was hissed. Forrest was furious and he was sure this was planned by McCready because of professional jealousy. Forrest went to the next performance of McCready's he could find and publicly and loudly hissed his rival, causing an uproar in the newspapers. Fast forward to the fall of 1848. Charles McCready decides to go on a second tour in the US. But this time, his reviews are much less positive than before. Partly because of an increasing anti-British sentiment, but also the result of Forrest's increasingly public campaign against him. It seems Forrest just could not bear the success of McCready, and when his arrival announced dates in Philadelphia, where Forrest lived, he announced he would play the same days to prove his superiority. Forrest kept up the pressure for months, and when McCready came to New York, Forrest made sure he would do his own Macbeth at the same time. The newspaper trade loved all of this, of course, and many tickets were sold to both productions. Finally, after a performance which had to be called off due to audience behavior, which involved throwing things on stage, McCready accepts defeat and says he will leave for England on the first boat. Many prominent citizens of New York ask him to stay for one final grand performance and promise that New York is a welcome place for such a supreme actor. And now the stage is set. The performance venue, the Astor Place Opera House, is very tightly controlled. Unlike many theaters, it was meant for upper class patrons only with a serious dress code and high prices. Its very existence made some of Forrest's fans unhappy. With police inside the theater and out, the performance began. Thousands of people soon arrived outside, but could not find their way into the locked building. Soon they started throwing rocks and even the paving stones from the streets into the windows. Soon they started throwing rocks and even the paving stones from the streets into the windows. Authorities asked for help from 350 members of the 7th Regiment, which included mounted troops. After being jostled around and some injuries, the soldiers shot above the crowd. This probably just injured people in the rear who were likely bystanders. Then, the soldiers fired directly into the crowd right in front of them. When it was all over, between 22 and 31 people were dead, and over 45 wounded. The police later said 50 officers were also injured. Many were so horrified, they called for a protest the next day, which also turned violent. 
In a parallel with more recent events, the city's elite congratulated themselves immensely on the strong action against the so-called radicals. Even so, the theater was soon dubbed Disaster Place in vaudeville and comedy acts and closed not long after. The Astor Place riot was a clear example of the increasing stratification in New York society. As for our two protagonists, William McCready went back to England, went on a farewell tour, and promptly retired. Edwin Forrest was soon involved in a contested divorce, which involved multiple allegations of adultery, putting the actor in a tabloid firestorm all over again. It was years before his reputation recovered well enough to have further great success as an actor in New York. He also used his fortune to build a forest home for retired actors, an institution which continued on for the next hundred years. Now on to the main event of today's episode. My guest followed his muse from growing up in eastern Canada to playing an important role at one of North America's most prominent opera companies. Our fascinating conversation touched on many topics. One highlight was his passionate words on the need to keep renewing the art form with brand new works from new composers. Stay to the end to hear his ideas for enjoying the world of opera. We started, however, with where his love of music began. Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and a family piano. Here is my conversation with Mark Morash the new interim music director of the Calgary Opera. Hello, Mark. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, you grew up in Nova Scotia. Was music a big part of your life as a kid? Oh, it sure was. I mean, I, I'll be quite honest. Uh, like most kids, not a ton of opera in growing up uh, in Nova Scotia. Um, I'm from, I'm, I always say Halifax to, to people, but I'm really from Dartmouth across the harbor. And uh, so the, the music I heard, there was always music in my house. My mother played piano. Um, you know, she, if, if there was, she played, played piano and there was always seemed to be sing-alongs going on in our house. And uh, she was never held back very much by, by notes on the page. She played only by ear for the, for the most part, but she played all the time. So I just, I guess I always heard music. And, and on my dad's side of the family, there was, uh, his mother taught some piano, and although I never heard her play so much, but that's the way the the family lore goes. So there was always music in my house, and it just seemed natural to start, you know, poking away at the piano as you know, as soon almost as soon as I could walk. I mean, I know, uh, you know, when I was three or four, I was already picking out "God Save the Queen" on the on the piano or some story. Maybe maybe that was not for a few years yet. I quite forget how the the fable goes, but um, there was yeah. So I mean. There was always music for me, maybe n not classical music in the beginning, but that sort of was the avenue that I sort of got into before too long. What I heard first was Gaslight era songs, era songs like Let Me Call You Sweetheart and, uh, you know, uh, Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree and songs like that. I mean, that would, that's the kind of songs that I would hear my mother play. And so, you know, you just kind of learn those and, and, and you know, would emulate, I suppose. It's just you didn't think about it. You were just a, a kid just doing, you know, picking up on whatever was around you. So you that's what you started off with. But as I say, there was always music. And so that that I think was the was precipitating factor. 
And so you started piano then pretty young. Was piano like a really big part of uh, your childhood or were you, you know, skipping practicing to go play soccer or how much (laughs) obsessed were you? It's truth telling time now, I suppose. I played a lot. I played the piano a lot. I probably didn't practice as much as I should have. But I certainly played the piano a lot. You know, if I wasn't if I wasn't practicing, I mean, I usually left that for a few days before my lesson to actually get down to practicing. But I bet you I probably was playing the piano, uh, you know, at least a couple hours a day from quite a young age, just playing for my own pleasure. Yeah, that was a lot what I did. I mean, and also in elementary school, we started to have we had the option to take violin, and so I started violin when I was eight and played that as well. And and continued that till I was finished out. Oh, first year of college, I guess, is when I finally really stopped with violin. But so, you know, there, there was always musical activities or there was choir at the church or there was, you know, there was there was always musical activities going on. And, and so was it around the time that you were in high school when you were introduced to uh, more classical music? And was it through those lessons or well, uh, through records? Uh, I was taking, so I mean, obviously my lessons, I maybe started taking piano lessons when I was seven. And so did that uh, until, you know, well, did that through all the way through my graduate school and take lessons. But that was always classical repertoire. Mm. Um, My teacher, my first teacher was sort of clever enough to always make part of uh, every lesson. Uh, She said, "Okay, so I need you to just bring in, you prepare some new song by ear. You know, she knew that I sort of had a propensity to be able to play by ear. And so I think she quietly wanted me to not lose that. Uh, even though she was focused on classical. So, you know, I had my Beethoven sonatas and I had, you know, whatever was going up in the Royal Conservatory grade books. I Certainly that was the the work in Bach, Preludes and Fugues and all those things. You studied all those. But she always wanted me to bring in something that, that was, uh, you know, something my own confection, something that I would own. And it's a skill that I always appreciated. I mean, it, actually in a huge way that she always was encouraging me to continue to listen and to play things out of my own, you know, out of my own head and think about how I heard things and and try and recreate that at the piano. So there was lots of classical music coming along. Uh, You know, as I say, I had lots of classical repertoire in my lessons and and I loved it. I loved the classical music. It was not like I had to be dragged to that repertoire. I completely adored it. I did that. And then with the the violin as well, that was mostly just in public school until I was about, um, I guess about 13 or 14 years old, and then my violin teacher, who was uh, uh, had to escape from the Czech from Czechoslovakia, and he was teaching in, in the school uh, school system, and that's the job that he wound up with when he came to Canada. So he's a very very fine violinist, and and you know teaching all of us, you know all of us uh, ne'er do wells in, in public school. But you know I guess I probably had a little bit more on the beam for classical music than most of them, and somehow he directed me into the the provincial youth orchestra that was auditioning for string positions. And so even though I wasn't, maybe I had never, and uh, to, to be honest, I never practiced the violin. I mean, honest to God, I might've practiced five hours in my life, but because I sort of got it, I was able to cope quite well. And when I got to youth orchestra and heard like, that was the first time when I was, I, I guess, 14 years old, I think the first time I heard a symphonic orchestra. And that was like, 
you have got to be kidding. This is the most fantastic thing in the whole freaking world. I mean, to hear all those sounds and I mean, this was a mix of high school kids and college level players. And some of those brass players, college level brass players would come in and, and it just, it just blew my socks off. I mean, this was, this was the most wonderful thing to, to be playing with a, a symphony orchestra. And I, I think in, in many ways, um, that was one of the formative things that sort of solidified all the sounds of classical music in my head that it's like this is kind of like so much the sound of my of my what what speaks to me you know that's where i sort of found that that sound and and i I became so much more interested in everything that classical music could be like a lot of people also i had a um, my high school music teacher i was involved in the choir program in high school and uh, by the time I was in high school in Dartmouth, I, I think I played for every choir in the city. So my high school music teacher was one of the pe- big people who was interested in kind of getting me to pursue classical music. And, and at that time, I didn't know if I wanted to do it for a career. I, I was interested in languages. And he said, well, you know, uh, I don't care what you do, but you have to go to Mount Allison University, which is where he had gone. And he said, you need to study with this person. And so anyway, so I said, well, I, I don't think I'm going to do music. So I applied to Mount Allison for uh, a BA with for a language major and wrote them a letter and said, I want to be also, also be able to um, take piano as an elective. So they wrote back and they said, you know, you're into the BA program, no, no issue. Uh, and we want to offer you a scholarship, but we can't, we're not a big enough school to be able to allow you to take piano for credit. So that won't be possible. So because of that, I thought, well, I'm not really ready to stop piano just yet. So I'll do music for one year and I'll hate it. And then, uh, then that'll be it. And I'll just hang it all up. But um, after about three days at, at Mount Allison, truly about three days, suddenly I got hooked up with a, the first uh, really classical singer that I had really seriously worked with. And that's when like another whole chapter opened up, how much I loved singing and, and, and being around the voice. And I never looked back from then. I mean, it was just like, this is, this is too fantastic. I, this is what I truly have to do with the rest of my life. Sometimes singers have come to the game late. They have, you know, maybe maybe they played another instrument or maybe they didn't do anything, especially in, in classical music, but their voices had to, you know, suddenly when they get into their mid to late teens, suddenly their voices have grown up and they they start to discover that they can sing. So there, there's something, you know, sometimes singers aren't the most experienced, so they need people around them who can help them sometimes learn their music. They may be a little bit more, you know, hand-holding than what other, than what other instrumentalists would, uh, would uh, expect. As I say, the singers sort of figured out that I could sight read, that I had a feel for singers, sort of understood what they were going through, and I got involved in playing for their lessons. And once one person, um, you know, got wind that, that there was somebody who had a knack for this, then everybody's at your door saying, well, can you play for me? And can you play for my lesson? And I have this piece of music to learn. But I remember especially the first time, I, the first Brahms song I ever played in a lesson, which was the melody. And it was just... Uh, Again, I just, it was like heaven, like to think about these things that were so great, such um, rewarding things to play at the piano. They were expressive at the piano. And then you had this other person who was like creating this unbelievable uh, vocal line uh, on it. And it had words. And that was my other passion is that I cared so much about languages. At that time, I mostly had been studying French in school. And that's what I thought I would go pursue is learn more about French. But then you know, German became to, uh, got to be such a big deal. And then the further I got into it, which was a few more years later, you know, to, to find out that uh, started to study Italian, 
which uh, in the opera world, of course, is what you, that's the first language of opera is Italian. And so it just, it started to ring. It was just rang all my bells. So by the time you graduated from Mount Allison then, then you mm-hmm. already had noticeable experience being a coach and working with singers. While I was at uh, undergraduate school, I applied to the BAMP Center. There was a, a wonderful um, accompanist uh, named Martin Esep. He was an, an English uh, man. He used to play all the time for Janet Baker and John Shirley Quirk, all these fantastic English singers. Uh, he would play for them in recital and whatnot. And he gave an art song class a five-week art song class at uh, the Banff Center. And so I went there that summer, and that was really, I mean, that was a huge intensive for learning the leader and the melody and just the song repertoire in general. Uh, and, and that, I think, is the first time that anybody said to me, uh, somebody on the music staff said, you know, you know, the, you, you can make a living at playing these things. And, and somebody suggested about maybe moving to Toronto after my uh, uh, undergraduate degree. And, you know, you could go and you could work as a coach and just freelance. And, and I was like, freelance, what's that? I went back to my uh, school and my, after I finished Banff that summer, I went back from my senior year at, at uh, my undergraduate school. And my piano teacher there was quite supportive of me and everything that I was I was doing. But um, so I went back to school in the, the beginning of my senior year and I announced to her, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to go freelance in Toronto after this. And, and, uh, and you know, to which there was a, an, you know, I think an audible gasp. And she said, no, you need to go to graduate school and you need to, uh, you know, this is what is the next step for you. And you're not going to move to Toronto and throw your life away. So uh, anyway, after some conversation, we decided that I would uh, take a year in Toronto and then do my graduate degree, which is what I did. And, and I was very glad I did, I have to say. That, that year of spending freelancing, sort of sorting out what I knew and didn't know was uh, really a, an important development for me. I did my graduate degree at uh, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, studying with Martin Katz, who's one of the foremost uh, recital pianists uh, for, for singers in the, in the um, really in the world. I mean, he played for everybody, Kiri Tecanua, Frederico Ronstada, Jose Carreras. He was, he was the go-to guy in the, for the, for the concert um, repertoire. Um, he, you know, he played for them all. So he was also one of the people uh, that, that everybody was, if they were interested in becoming a collaborative pianist, that he was, you know, one of the very short list of people who you wanted to study with. So I went to there to his graduate program and accompaniment the thing I saw was a number of the people in, our, in my program were coming straight out of undergrad. And I realized very quickly, it's like that people who hadn't taken time to, taken time between their undergrad and grad school, who just gone straight on to the grad school, I felt like my difference was that I knew what I didn't know. I was desperate for the information because I knew how little I really knew that 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 you know to, to, that there was so much more that you had to absorb before you could really go out and, and you know be competitive in the field and and feel like and be qualified to do what it was you were you were saying you would you would do professionally I suppose. Well, let's talk about some of those skills. I mean, say uh-huh. you're going to play piano f- for a, a vocal recital. Obviously, uh-huh. you need a lot of technique at the, yeah. the keyboard, and yeah. you need to know about the composers and their style. But right. what else? Knowing singers. I mean, that's. I, I think that's uh, one of the big uh, deals, that, that there's a lot of very fantastic pianists who just, I mean... It, it's exposure, you know. I mean, like if you do, if you've never worked with singers, 
and you don't know what it is about their phrasing about and and not a, not only their voices i mean about their psyches and and that kind of thing about how they're going to react when they get anxious because uh, their instruments are so closely connected to anxiety, you know, what, whatever's going on in the world, the, the things can change on a dime and you have to, you know, maybe the piece has to go a little faster. Maybe you can, you know, maybe you know when they are in, in a performance, you know, suddenly you can tell that this phrase is not going to go at all like we discussed, you know, our nice theoretical uh, discussion of how this phrase might go when we're in the practice room and there's no pressure on and everybody thinks, oh yeah, I can sing for, I can sing that phrase for 25 seconds, no worries. And you could just feel when when they are out of gas and that the, the phrasing is going to have to change. And it's going to be different choices on the fly. You know, those kinds of things you have to know about. And in terms of preparing them, understanding the language and understanding the poetry and, and making sense of understanding where the composer came from. I mean, that's true in, in all uh, all stripes of music, I think, is that you have to you spend a lot of time uh, thinking what did the composer mean? Why did he write it like this? What what does that mean? Is this important? Or was this just, he had to put something on the page at that particular place and he put that note down just because he wanted the arpeggios to keep on going or something like that. You know, you're always examining the music. You know, when you're training to be a pianist, your soundscape is your own. You're, you are the entire world as a pianist. You, you get, uh, you know, you play Beethoven sonatas or something like that, and, and you're, the, you're the melody, you're the harmony, you're the rhythmic engine, you are everything right there. And so you are self-contained. And then when you go to play for somebody else, though, there is an element of surrender because often you're not the primary melody anymore. And then you you have so you have to your your awareness opens up. You have to sort of think about how am I part of this music rather than how am I being 100 percent responsible for the music? You're only part of the decision making. And that to an extent is also true for the opera conductor in that the symphonic conductor is usually considered, you know, the the king of the domain. But an opera conductor has to wrangle many different uh, competing. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I, I think that the difference for uh, the difference for an opera conductor, I think, is that there there's a, a great deal more accompanying in the opera world, I think, for, than than is in the everyday life of a symphony orchestra. For instance, I mean, like obviously in the opera world, you're always going to have a singer. You're always going to have a singer, and a lot of those same peccadillos of a singer are going to happen when you're performing, you know, in the opera. They're they're on stage. I have so much respect for singers. Their, their job is so complicated. It, you know, not only are they singing this intensely, highly evolved, complicated music, their execution of singing uh, is, is more of a physical act than anybody, than on any other uh, musician I can think of. Singers are, are making these sounds. I mean, you know, if, if you've ever tried to like to squeak out like a, a high note or a loud note or anything, you know how much physical force that takes. There's so much energy involved. It's such a physical activity for them. So things go things go wrong. You lay the groundwork and then you just go into the performance and you have to see what happens. You know you know kind of what tempos you think you want to take and you know again what what phrasing you've practiced and and all that kind of thing. But the singers are always going to be. There, there, there are always going to be moments of inspiration in a performance that you want to make sure that you're there for. You don't, you don't want to uh, get in their way. And sometimes they need your help.
He's got to have a sense of what the singer needs. There's a huge trust factor in the opera world. And, and again, it's, it, it does come down to, to singing and how well you know singers and, and what, what they need. Uh, the thing about a conductor is a conductor makes no noise. You have to be thankful for so many forces that you're being given the privilege of leading when you're conducting. But as I say, you make no noise of your own. So uh, it's, it's, it's also possible to cheat as a conductor. And I think that you, it's, I think singers sense that more than anybody. Um, they, they, they know when, they know when a conductor is breathing with them and feeling the phrases with them and when they're being helped out and when a conductor just doesn't know what to do to, to make the performance better for them. So how did you make the leap from being at the University of Michigan to the professional world? So when I came out of Michigan, uh, I had I took an apprenticeship with the Canadian Opera Company as an apprentice pianist in their ensemble there. I was actually in the ensemble for two years. And then after that, I was, uh, well, I, I was freelancing, but I was about half of the year um, on the working for Canadian Opera Company on the music staff there doing various things. I was a rehearsal pianist. I would be assistant conductor. I was uh, doing course mastering by the time I finished it at Canadian Opera. And uh, so I worked there for close to 10 years, but I was always involved in young artist training from, from the very beginning. I always wound up sort of finding myself with these, you know, summer programs and that kind of thing where I'd be uh, involved in, in uh, training, the, training upcoming singers. After a while, after a certain number of years, I had sort of gained some notoriety in that both on in Canada and in the U.S. because I had was able to go back and work at some festivals in the USA and all that kind of thing and, and um, had done gone back to Banff to work in Banff. And I myself, when I was in my graduate degree, had done um, the program at San Francisco Opera called the Merrill Opera Program, which was a, a, at that time a 10-week training program. Then we went, we put on uh, two operas and then did a, a big final concert in the Opera House at San Francisco Opera. So being at the Merrill program was the first time that I really had intensively worked on opera. And I was there as a, a student. This was, um, as I say, during my graduate years. And it was there that I thought, well, opera has to be my life. So that's why when I, uh, when I was in my second year of my graduate degree, I applied for the position at uh, Canadian Opera in the ensemble. But anyway, I circled back on the San Francisco story to say in the fall of 97, I had been in Toronto probably about 10 years. And... Uh, I got a call from San Francisco Opera. Was I interested in coming down and uh, interviewing for a position with the, the Opera Center in their their young artist division? Anyway, lo and behold, they they offered me the position. And be, before I went and started it, I actually got another phone call from San Francisco Opera, and they said, um, "Actually, the person in the position who would have you would have reported to has just resigned. So do you want that job instead?" So I had a promotion before I ever actually went to the job at San Francisco. But anyway, I went to San Francisco and I was there. I just finished working there actually in, uh, this year. A lady who I worked with in our opera center department, Sherry Greenwald, retired this year and it was the time for me to move on. So I spent 22 years down there with the Merrill program and with the San Francisco Opera Center with the Adler Fellows. And it was an endlessly rewarding time for me. I enjoy helping you know, young singers so much. And, and it was, uh, I got to do so many things that were fascinating for me. I really got to get my conducting launched in a, in a serious way through working with the Opera Center. And you know, when, when you're running a place, you get to make opportunities for yourself. And so I, I took full advantage of that. I mean, to clarify, the San Francisco Opera is one of the most well-esteemed companies in oh. the continent. Yeah, and I have to say that the um, the programs at San Francisco Opera Center, I mean, Merrill program, 
really was the pioneer of almost all young artist training as we know it. They were the people who were started who started up with the idea of why don't we bring people here for a concentrated amount of time and let them work with professionals in the field and and have hands-on experience and we'll put on um, performances with them. I mean that that San Francisco started doing it when it hadn't occurred to other opera companies to do this. So they truly were the pioneers. A few months ago, you are free, and the Calgary Opera yes. is in desperate need. Yes. Um, is there, uh, I mean, had you heard of the Calgary Opera? Or was well, there something yeah. particular about the the company that interested you? Well, interestingly, I had come up, I, I knew of Calgary Opera, actually. Um, what I knew mostly of it was a, a friend of mine in Toronto who was in, she was in the musical theater business, but uh, I met her shortly after I moved to Toronto in whatever that was, 88, and 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 she said, oh, by the way, my, you know, as we were getting to know one another, my mother works for Calgary Opera, and so uh, that was Sandy Atkinson, who, um, uh, who was the, she used to be the repetitor at at, um, at Calgary Opera, but then for for many more years after she stopped being the repetitor, she was the chorus master, and she just retired, uh, in this uh, the spring of 2020, she just retired from Calgary Opera. Anyway, so through. Sandy would come to Toronto to visit her daughter and so I just got to know her and that was kind of like you know where I got to know a little bit about Calgary Opera by talking to Sandy I would hear about the company and hear about what they were doing so it kind of got on my radar and then when I was working in Toronto I mean the various people who uh, ran Calgary would come to uh, Toronto to audition singers and so I you know got to know people but then I went away to the U.S. and and uh, uh, I sort of my contact with the Canadian opera scene was somewhat more limited. Uh, I didn't follow so closely what was going on in uh, in Canada and the opera world. It, it wasn't as day-to-day my knowledge of Canadian opera. But anyway, uh, Mel Kirby called me in late the fall of 2018. Did I want to come up and do a, a residency with the emerging artists here at Calgary Opera? And uh, I actually, we had just had one of the emerging artists uh, who had gone through the program here in Calgary had come to Marilla that previous summer. I, and she was wonderful. She was a wonderful singer. And I, so I started, I, I made that connection and I knew that Calgary was doing wonderful things for, for young singers. And so when Mel called me to ask if I want to come do, come up and spend a week with the emerging artists and work with them, I thought, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. And so even before I came for that, there was um, a workshop, a John Astachio opera, uh, that uh, Calgary Opera had commissioned and they were about to have a workshop of it and they needed a conductor for it and so Keith Cerny who was running Calgary Opera at that time uh, reached out and said did I would I be interested in coming up and doing doing that workshop so I thought yeah why not I'd, I'd very much like to you know as I say I was kind of uh, by by uh, association I was sort of thinking how great the stuff must be going on at Calgary Opera which I was very correct to assume so I came up and did the workshop for John Astachio, and that was Heather Kitchen, who's now the managing director at Calgary Opera, had just started like that week or the week before. It was I, I met Heather that first week when I was here doing the John Astachio um, workshop. So I, I knew her a little bit from that. And then when I came, when I heard about uh, you know, Bramwell's uh, issues, where he had to step down from the music director, from the artistic directorship at Calgary Opera uh, this fall, I wrote to Heather and I said, you know, gosh, I, I'm I'm sitting here doing nothing. If I can be of any help while you're, you know, trying to figure out what to do with the company, please, please let me know. I, I would be delighted to come work with you. I, what I've seen at Calgary Opera is absolutely, you know, was absolutely wonderful. So I'd be thrilled if I could help out. 
I've been here since the beginning of November as the interim music director. Boy, this place has got a lot going on for being a, uh, you know, for having shifted gears over coronavirus. This, it's really an amazing place uh, with all the things that they've cooked up to do and, and uh, use their time in interesting ways while, while they can't be presenting a main stage season for, for the opera. Yeah, so this year the, the main stage is totally dark. Uh, right. Although over the holidays, uh, the opera did present uh, a video. You were a key part of that. There are things that you are thinking about for the spring. We are actually going to do a series of, uh, there'll be four different, four different uh, uh, operas that we're going to workshop between now and the end of April. One of them is the is the, the finishing up the workshopping of the John Astacio opera that I told you about earlier. That was we workshopped the first act that we're now going to be workshopping the whole piece. So these are all brand April. new pieces. This is a yeah. This is never. This is a new opera by Astacio. And then, but what we're doing a piece. Uh, we're working on a piece by Sammy Musa. That's the first workshop we're beginning on Monday. Sammy is a Canadian composer uh, who's been living in Berlin for quite a while. His this piece here called Vastation. Uh, which is kind of like devastation minus the duh. But it means essentially the same. I mean, it really means like destruction. Uh, this is a piece he, he wrote and had, it was performed in 2014. But for various reasons, it was not the success Sammy was hoping for. And so this is somebody who, uh, composer Bramwell, had played uh, some of his music, symphonic music, and had gotten to know Sammy and knew of this opera and said, you know, why don't you bring this piece to Calgary and we'll do a workshop out of, of it and, and have a look at it again and see if this, you know, if this piece is, is something that you want to go back and, and sort of rework. Anyway, so we are beginning work on that. We're going to spend three weeks looking at this uh, opera vestation of Sammy Musa. We're doing also the uh, next piece is a group of indigenous uh, uh, Canadian artists are going to have an experimentation with a sort of a composition collective. It is four singers two composers and a librettist are coming together uh, for a piece they're calling Namwayut. And I, I hesitate to say what I, I think it means in, in, um, in one of the First Nations languages, we are one, is what I believe Namwayut means. And so they're, they're going to spend three weeks here kind of working on what it's like to compose with, with everybody's input so that the, all voices are being heard in this, in this collaboration and to see if that's something that just would go painfully slow slowly that it's, it's not tenable or if it's something where the composers the people who are traditionally composers are, are aided by the input of the singers and the librettist being actively involved on a daily basis in the composition so it's a new way to look a new way to look at creating an opera creating a, a stage work and they're going to we're, we're again um, providing them with resources and support to to work here for three weeks on that piece and then after that, we're having another workshop with Ottawa composer Kelly Marie Murphy, who also has worked, her, her work is very well known in the symphonic world in Canada for chamber groups, choral groups, solo music. She's writ, really written in a lot of different forms, and but never especially opera. And so this was somebody who, again, Bramwell had made connection with and invited Kelly, said, why don't you write a short you know, a, a segment of an opera on some topic that you're that you're interested in, and we'll look at it and see if this is something, if it's a medium that you're interested in in uh, working in, or if it's um, you know, if if this is your calling, yours, Kelly Marie Murphy's, if this is your calling to write this kind of piece, and 
uh, you know, if you like it, if we like it, uh, all those kinds of things. And just so she's bringing about a, it's about a 15 minute segment. So we're going to work on that and, and sort of talk about, you know, how that works and have a chance to sit and, and talk about what works and what doesn't. This is kind of the, uh, the opera version of, of R&D for the future. Exactly that. I mean, I think the thing that's become clear in the, in the opera world is that we have to have new compositional voices. We can't just play from the canon. We have to know, we, the, the new people have to come forward. We have to be willing to e examine what are those new voices? What is opera going to sound like in the 21st century? And who are those voices? We have to discover them. They don't happen if they don't get a chance to get performed. And, and they have to learn. And we have to learn what they're about. And we have to find out who they are. And so it's, you know, it's it's uh, on, on all sides. This has to happen. We have to keep moving the uh, the, the composition of new operas forward to, to keep our audiences interested, to engage younger generation, to keep the art form alive. We have to have new music to, to keep moving us forward. When you are working on a new piece, do you have a different attitude than if you're working on uh, one of the traditional favorites? Yes, it is. It's fascinating, actually, to work on new works because you can ask the composer what they were thinking. You can ask them for answers. There's that additional element of collaboration. When you are preparing AIDA, of course, there's been volumes and volumes written on, on Verdi, and there's been so much scholarly research on that. But when it comes down to it, it's you and the page, and you have to figure out what's on that page. And there are certainly resources. You can go. You can listen to things. You can, you know, you can look at all of the works of Verdi, and, and there's many ways to sort of learn about Verdi. But it, when you're dealing with a new composer, you're there to say, well, what did you mean by this? And why did you write this? And could it be something else? Or if it can't be something else, why does it have to be this? What inspires you to write that? And all kinds of fascinating questions that, that you understand and you're empowered by the knowledge of what the creation is about. I mean, it's it's a really a, a fascinating world to to hear from the composer, to hear what it is they want, and then to hear them talk. You know, often if they'll coach their own music, you sort of see it's a lesson in kind of what interests them. What are what do they care about? Do they care about that you get that eighth followed by sixteenth followed by dotted eighth? You know, correct. Is that what's important? Is it the rhythm that's important? Is it the spirit of the whole phrase that's important? You know, what what is it? What's the driving force for them? It's I think truly liberating to to ha have that uh, opportunity to hear them and understand what they want from the music. I'm guessing that when you talked about the the absolute need for new operas and new voices, you didn't mean that we should just dump Verdi, just that you sort of rebalance <laughs> the way we think of this is that, you know, right yeah. now it's sort of 99% old, 1% new. It, it, well, you say that, and that's true to a certain point, but I'll tell you the pendulum has most certainly shifted. I mean, there's almost no opera co company on this continent that I can think of that does not have a new opera in their hopper somewhere. Uh, that they're, You know, if you go back, if you went back say 25 years you know a major opera company might put on a new commission once every 10 years and now if you're if you don't have a, a commission going on uh you know that you're putting something new up probably every every two years whether it's on your main stage whether it's in a secondary smaller venue where you know there's, there's sort of less financial stake it is the way the business operates now you have to have 
you have to be investing in new opera. It's what is really one of the driving forces of a company. I mean, the, the staples, uh, of course, are, are Verdi, Puccini, and, and uh, you know, th those, those are never going to go away as long as opera exists. Those guys, and, and nor would we want them to go away. I mean, there's so much fantastic music and fantastic music for voices. Uh, in there, we'd never want them to go away, or certainly I wouldn't. But I can tell you that the pendulum has really shifted. That uh, new audiences are curious; they want to know about these new pieces. It's certainly one of the ways I think that we can break down the barriers. People think, oh, either they think oh, I really want to go to the opera, or they think, oh, I don't think I want to go to the opera. I think that's loud people shouting at me for two hours or three hours. You know that that one of the ways that barrier gets broken down so that people can be exposed to to opera is that they can come to modern operas and see in oftentimes much more contemporary and more immediately recognizable expression what it is that an operatic voice can do and how that could speak to you in a contemporary fashion without all the trappings of being 100-year-old music, isn't being recorded on a microphone that doesn't have a drum track underneath of it. You know, all those things are different. But, you know, gosh, when when classical music was written, it was the pop music of the time. It was what people listened to. They, were, they didn't have another option. So, you know, I think it, it behooves us to make a connection with contemporary audiences to say, we love this kind of music and you can love it too if we can just find out how it connects to you. So are there um, one or two or three somewhat recent works that have a particularly interest you that you would recommend uh, for people to check out? Jake Heggie has one of the most well-known American composers and his opera, Dead Man Walking, which is you know the same as many people will have seen the movie of Dead Man Walking, is an absolute masterpiece. I mean, it's been played really all around the world. It is so moving. This Dead Man Walking was kind of Jake's debut. It He had been... Uh, he was a, a composer, but had the, he was working in the PR department at San Francisco Opera, and Lafi Mansouri sort of plucked him out of obscurity. He knew about Jake, and he had seen, heard some of the songs that he had written, and he, Lafi, being quite a showman and, and always willing to take a risk, said, I'm going to have you write an opera. And so he put Jake together with Terry Mc, Terrence McNally, uh, American playwright. He put him, uh, ter Terrence, to write the libretto. And Jake then went ahead to write the opera of Dead Men Walking. And I, I went into, I had tickets for a, a performance and it, it all sort of happened. And I, it wasn't super on my radar that this was transpiring at the time. And I went in to, and I got a seat, I think maybe in, in the second row or something, the box office gave me, a, you know, like if they had an empty seat close down, they would always put the staff as close down as they could. And I saw the show from the second row and I couldn't believe it. It was just it's the most, I mean, it's a powerful story anyway, but Jake's music was so evocative and just really added a whole other level to it. There's some some operas that don't, if the story is strong, sometimes the music can sort of get in the way and not add anything to it. But uh, it was Jake's setting of the, the Dead Men Walking story was just brilliant. It is really one of the great operas of, um, of current times and, and an opera that I think anybody would, would really be drawn to. And another piece I've been around that I adore is um, Streetcar Named Desire by Andre Previn, uh, which I conducted a few times. And uh, this was, uh, there's another example of somebody taking what's already a great story, but adding another level of um, the music really adds a, a, another level of information about these characters and, and expression. And, and there's, there's so much that's sort of New Orleans jazz inflected in the in the uh, 
the music and and these the characters are just infinitely interesting. Andre did a really beautiful job with that. And then there are there are some new operas which I haven't heard yet, which I'm very curious to hear. There's an opera called As One, which is somebody about somebody who uh, it makes a gender change. I think Laura Kaminsky, I think, is the composer of that. If I have that right, uh, again, it's an opera that's really getting a lot of playtime. Uh, I know a very it's supposed to be a very touching score. It's a piece that again I'm I'm really looking forward to to seeing and hearing for the first time whenever I get a chance. I think that's the direction that a lot of the contemporary pieces that are being written are taking about. They're taking stories that people can identify with that are really about the current times. Well, we're almost out of time. So finally, if you run into someone and they think, they say to you, uh, I'm not so sure about opera. Is this really something I should interest myself in? Um, what mm -hmm. do you tell them? I think what's compelling for me and what I've seen repeatedly, I used to do when my kids were going through public school, we had used to do a, there was a foundation to help fund the schools. And I used to do a, a house concert annually for to raise money for that foundation. And so I would bring a couple singers over from San Francisco Opera. And we lived, I didn't live in San Francisco proper. I lived outside the San Francisco. And so these people were not necessarily people who would go to the opera. They were people who knew that I worked at worked in opera and that they were sort of interested in that and thought that was fascinating that I was, you know, worked at, at you know an international opera company that that was sort of interesting to them. But maybe they didn't drive the 30 miles into San Francisco to go to the opera themselves. They, you know, would have regular jobs. And we do like a maybe a 30 or 40 minute concert or something. Without fail, without exception, people hearing the human voice up close like that, pouring their soul out, and not by pouring their soul out, I don't mean they have to be loud, but just singing with that kind of vocal energy that it takes to make an operatic sound, hearing voices like that is a palpable, humane, visceral activity. The human voice, when you hear it expressed like that and sung with such physical commitment as it takes to make what's a, what's a classically sung sound, is like nothing else. That is when they suddenly go, Oh my God, that was like, you know, people that, again, these are people who would don't, do many different things and they're not even necessarily interested in arts, especially. And I would look out in the audience when halfway through these concerts and there would just be tears streaming down their face as they'd be so moved by just the passion and the intensity of what was coming at them. You know, going to the opera is something that the more you know about it, the bigger the payoff. It's like drinking wine, isn't it? I mean, you can go and you can get a, a you can get a, a bottle, a five dollar bottle of wine, and you can get drunk, and that's fine, and you'll like it for that. But you then, the more you know about it, and the more you know what it is you're tasting, the better that experience becomes. Maybe your first experience, turn on, just listen to some. You know, the arias are, are the easiest things to get onto. Puccini wrote opera arias. So they'd be, they would fit on one side of a phonograph record because they were pop songs and that's how he could market them. So he made sure his all his arias fit under three minutes and 15 seconds or whatever would fit on the wax of one side of a, of a phonograph. That was his timing. And there's so much passion and so much of a story and an arc in that three minutes of a Puccini aria. Go listen to a Puccini aria. There's my recommendation. You ask me, what do I tell somebody? Go listen to Kejeli uh, Damanina from La Boheme or something. I could, you know, Tell people what the list of arias is that they should go listen to. And, and then if they listen to it and they like it, why don't you find a translation of that aria and see what you think? And then you might know what the words mean. And then once you know what the words mean, why don't you listen to the, you know, the, the aria that comes right after it? You're going to love that one too. And before you know it, you're going to be engrossed in that whole first act of La Boheme. And then suddenly 
you'll want to know what comes after that. And curiosity begets curiosity. And I, I promise you, you'll uh, you'll want to know more about it. And the place to go hear it, there's nothing you can listen to opera on recordings. But boy, if you can hear it live, that's a whole other thing. There's the step-by-step guide to loving opera. <laughs> that's right. Though that's all the time we have for today. Mark Marash of the Calgary Opera, thanks so much uh, for joining me and sharing your knowledge. Oh, my great pleasure. Thank you, Jonathan. Lots of interesting thoughts there. Remember, as always, the show notes include lots of links and info, including how to hear some of the operas Mark mentioned and an entire book about the Astor Place Riot. If you are enjoying Culture Monster, please share this episode with friends. Depending on where you listen to it, you can also review and rate as well as share. For comments, queries, ideas for future episodes, contact me at john, that's J-O-N, at culturemonster.ca. There's lots more Culture Monster in the pipeline. I'm Jonathan Grafman. Thanks for listening.